Welcome back to World War Now, everybody. I am your host, Conrad Franz, joined as always by Dmitry Kalyagin and one of our favorite regular guests that we have on the show, really a recurring character in the World War Now extended universe. But we're coming at you as the Third World War rapidly expands. We see new strikes and fronts being opened up between Iran and Pakistan. We see strikes in Kurdistan by Iran as Turkey also strikes across Iraqi Kurdistan in these regions. Of course, the election in America is heating up with as Trump demolishes the competition across these early primary and caucuses. And of course, there's new rhetoric coming from the Russians as it seems the dismantling of the Ukrainian state is on the menu and seems to be at the forefront of possible upcoming negotiations as we hear news about Switzerland and the Ukrainian government ready to come to the negotiating table. So we're going to talk about all of that and more with our special guest here, Dimitri. How are you doing? Doing great, Conrad. Glad to be here. And I mean, it's just really good timing bringing this guest on because, you know, as eloquent and as specialized as he is, I think it is the time of diplomacy, especially this last week and a half has been really intense in world affairs, right? We've seen the Middle East essentially boil boil over and over again between countries like Turkey, Pakistan, Israel. There's just a lot of intense, there's a buildup happening in that particular area of the world and naturally in Europe as well people are preparing for some sort of Slavic rise right we're looking at Respublika Srpska Ukraine Russia the tensions are rising and Zelensky amidst all of this is preparing some sort of peace conference in Switzerland which to which Russia is not being invited it's all very entertaining and even the Africans are being involved during the ICJ proceedings but our eloquent and well-spoken guest today is the one and only Jim Jatras, who we've had on for a few episodes already, but he's whenever he comes on, he always gives us a very uh, nuanced and detailed perspective. And of course, it's always good to have someone, a professional from the actual field of international relations and policy coming onto the show. So Jim, good to have you here uh, in this, I guess, third week moving into 2024. It's an exciting year, so good, good for you to be here, sir. Dimitri, it's great to be here with you and uh, Conrad. Uh, 2024, yeah, I think it's going to be some kind of a year of destiny. I just had that feeling a lot of big things are going to happen this year. No, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, the election in America is usually such a big thing that it makes these sort of years so big. And I don't even think the election is the biggest possibility we have on the menu. And that thing, of course, is going to really heat up. And we're going to talk about some of our projections and some of Jim's thoughts as he has been a denizen of the Beltway Swamp for much longer than either me or Dimitri have been alive. So it's always good to have his perspective there. But Jim, I think we'll hop right into what's going on in the Levant. Of course, Benjamin Netanyahu recently came out and said directly that he has no interest in any kind of Palestinian state in the current broadly understood more moderate greater Israel that includes the West Bank and Gaza. He said himself that Israel will rule from the river to the sea, which, you know, interesting choice of words as that's usually said by the Palestinian side. But Jim, I'm kind of wondering your perspective on Netanyahu's attitude. Of course, it seems that the White House wants them to hold back in Gaza and the West Bank and Lebanon more than they already are. But at the same time, we are doing their dirty work against the Houthis and striking across Yemen. So I'm wondering your assessment of the sort of diplomatic chess work being done here. You know, I don't, I don't know that there's actually a whole lot of what you call dip diplomacy. There's certainly a lot of things going on. I don't know how much of that involves diplomacy. When I heard uh, Netanyahu and River to the Sea, my first thought was, well, at least it's not from the Nile to the Euphrates. I guess he's mm. he's 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 pulling in his ambitions a little bit. So <laughs> maybe that's a step <laughs> in the right direction. I don't know. Um, I think what this illustrates, though, is something that at least to me has been clear for um, 
ever since October 7th and this whole thing blew up is that you've heard other commentators talking about, well, we really need to start working for this the two-state solution, and this is really going to put it back on the table, and the international community needs to push, push for a two-state. Hey, there is no two-state solution. There will not be a two-state solution. There will only be a one-state solution, and at this point, the question is, which of those states will it be, Israel or Palestine? Because I think for both sides now, this is an ex existential struggle. And when Netanyahu says this is like a second war of Israeli independence, he's not entirely wrong. Because if they lose this one, I think it's all over for Israel. Uh, maybe not immediately, but within the next five or ten years. You've heard some reports about large numbers of Israeli Jews leaving Israel. Uh, I, you know, I heard a number, I don't know if it's accurate, that something like 500,000 have last left in the last year or so. So I don't know if, you know, so I, I think he has to go for broke. And unfortunately for the United States, going for broke means giving him a blank check to do whatever he wants. There seems to have been some sort of pullback from Gaza. I don't know if that's just tactical right now. But to me, the main the main event is yet to come, and that's in the north. Um, that uh, they've given a, a, a ultimatum to Hezbollah to pull back behind the Latani River. They have not acted yet on that ultimatum, even though the, the Hezbollah has not pulled back. I, I don't think that there, I, I think the prospects the Israelis could actually beat Hezbollah, especially without direct American support, is, is very questionable. I'm not sure they can do it even with American support. So this the, the prospects for this growing, and we haven't even talked about uh, Yemen and, uh, and Syria and Iraq and a lot of other places that could flame up. Uh, the prospects for this thing escalating and dragging in the United States is is just huge. And let's keep in mind that, you know, we could say that the Biden administration would like to pressure the Israelis or request the Israelis or beg the Israelis to back off. I don't think <laughs> I don't think Mr. Netanyahu pays much attention to that at all. When all is said and done, Netanyahu has a lot more influence in Washington than, than that mummy in the White House does. Yeah, and I think we witnessed just the kind of concerns the Western Western leaders in the Western world, especially leaders in, in the Western developed economies, have for the Palestinian people at the recent World Economic Forum Davos meeting in Switzerland. Naturally, um, Netanyahu basically came up only a little bit. The main talking points were, of course, the Ukraine-Russian war, economics, AI, and of course, Vladimir Putin's uh, failed diplomacy at reaching a peace agreement, even though Zelensky was the main talking point here. But where was, I mean, where, where, the main issue here, of course, was probably the diplomatic ties between Israel and the other Arabic states. And of course, coming to some sort of, you know, agreed upon diplomatic standstill, which frankly, the United Nations called for several times already over the last few months. And this has been the greatest, I guess, talking point in international relations, I think for the last, you know, you could say quarter of a year, right, since October. So, but this wasn't mentioned at Davos. So we we know that elites have given a carte blanche, I think. We can kind of see that uh, Netanyahu has been given a clean slate and he can essentially act as he wishes at you know, in this particular instance to the uh, you know local so-called Palestinian Aboriginal peoples. And the other thing I think we see very clearly in just that Middle Eastern zone is just the, the hesitation that the Islamic states have at actually supporting their, um, you know, I would say ideological allies in Hamas and Palestine. But then again, as you as you may know, Jim and Conrad, we've spoken many times that the differences in the Middle East perhaps are not that obvious to us in the West, but are very clear on the ground over there. They know exactly who the Palestinian people are genetically, culturally, ethnically, and the ties, although these people may look the same physically, 
uh, they are very different. And so I think these, you know, we speak about racism, discrimination all the time. I think the Palestinians are experiencing this existential discrimination from their Islamic Sunni neighbors. And Netanyahu is essentially allowed to do as he wishes. Naturally, a lot of young Israeli men and women are dying in Gaza at the moment. The, you know, the standstill has has occurred in Gaza City. The, you know, they're not pushing through as fast as, they, as they'd like. The Palestinians are actually reporting over 800 armored vehicles destroyed, so even more than, than than Putin has taken taken out in the Ukrainian counteroffensive in July and August, which is, these are crazy numbers, so we're not actually sure. And again, the data coming from the ground is not very accurate, although this week it has been officially announced that the number of Palestinian children killed in the conflict has reached over 10,000. So, and this is, of course, due to the fact that the all the journalists who were actually documenting all the statistics of victims from within Gaza itself have either been killed or have been taken prison by the IDF so there's really the numbers are not as accurate as we'd like uh, naturally I think it's all horrific but these are essentially documents of war crimes which are now being discussed at the International um, Court of Justice in South Africa which I mean South Africans are experts at I guess apartheid regime so to speak at least you know that's what they claim to be that's why they're looking at this particular case and actually bringing it forward in the International Court of Law but we've spoken last week to Conrad about how the ICC the ICJ have essentially you know, made themselves a little bit, the ICC and the ICJ have made themselves a little bit obsolete by accusing Putin and Matushka Maria Lvova Belova, the Commissioner of Children's Rights in Russia, of child smuggling in Mariupol. Meanwhile, you have cases like the Epstein case where the actual uh, connoisseurs of child smuggling and pedophilia are being let free and really there's no real investigation happening over there with Ghislaine Maxwell essentially with you know closed and redacted court hearings and documents not being fully released. Of course, it's all very controversial, but they're projecting on the Russia. That just real quick, just real quick. Indonesia is like joining South Africa and also bringing stuff to the ICJ. Which, again, like we said, the ICC, ICJ, whatever you want to think of them. But South Africa, Indonesia, these are two big, you know, BRICS tier multipolar countries. You know, so that's right. And I just want to mention real quick, like Indonesia as a counterbalance to the fact that the you know countries like Australia and New Zealand are actually completely in support of Operation Prosperity Guardian, alleg allegedly very in support of Netanyahu in Israel, which is very controversial because Australia and New Zealand, they do have very uh, large Muslim populations, especially from those war-torn areas like Lebanon, the Lebanese Civil War, Palestinians, Afghanistan, Iraq, places like that. And yet the Australian government is keen alongside its New Zealand neighbor to actually support all of these Western operations. So very controversial, especially to the north, given that there's a massive almost 400 million large Islamic population living just north of the border, uh, you know, close to 26 million uh, strong Australia. So very, very interesting fact there. But Netanyahu, yes, completely unhinged and he's acting com completely, he has the carte blanche, right? And I think Jim would agree that the the Islamic neighbors of Israel have actually given him this opportunity, especially if you look, if we look at countries like Turkey, the only pushback Turkey has given Israel has been rhetorically, right? They've transferred gas. They haven't interrupted any Azerbaijan weapons and resource shipping to Israel, which is funny. Azerbaijan is like the serviceman of Israel at this point. They're just like changing the tires on the Formula One car for Israel, which is really bizarre because they're kind of Turkey's uh, lieutenant, if anything. So Turkey has completely allowed Israel to run free. And the only you know, countries giving opposition are, of course, the Yemenis, Houthis and Iran at this point. Well, I, th I think you're, you're right. I, I agree with much of what you've said. It's um, I think there's there's a lot of these governments in the Middle East, and let's let's keep in mind, many of them like Jordan, Egypt, and others 
are essentially financial puppets of, of Washington. So the regimes have to be very careful, but they're sitting on a powder keg or a volcano, whatever metaphor you want to choose in terms of what their populations think. I mean, take a country like Egypt, for example, Egypt, of course, is on the dole from the Americans, and we basically bribe them with billions of dollars a year to be at peace with Israel. But now you have Israel, what is it, I think, called the Philadelphia Corridor in uh, mm -hmm. in West Gaza, where the Israelis are talking about moving in there in a way that would violate Egyptian sovereignty. How do the Egyptians respond to that, given that when we're talking about uh, Hamas, that is the Gaza arm of the Muslim Brotherhood, who, of course, is General al-Sisi's number one domestic threat? You know, remember when he overthrew the uh, the Muslim uh, Brotherhood government there in mm -hmm. Egypt? Who's who's by the way the biggest supporter of the of the Hamas and the Muslim Brotherhood? It's not Iran, despite what from you hear from Washington. It's Qatar, our our number one ally in the Gulf, where we have our biggest base in the region. So the cross currents here are pretty uh, pretty complex. Let's also keep in mind that if this thing does blow up into a regional war, the last time the Israelis were in a real war. Uh, in 1973, Turkey and uh, in Iran were both very closely, strongly pro-Israeli. That's not mm -hmm. the case now. And so th th let's say their strategic depth in the region is very poor. And there are a lot of regimes there that are trying to stay out of it as much as possible, but they realize that their pr prospects of doing so Put them in jeopardy with respect to their own populations. The other thing, and this is the other someplace where we might actually disagree, is that, um, and I like to make sure that on any program I try to offend everybody, including possibly the hosts, is that <laughs> I, I, you know, having been a defense witness for uh, Mr. Milosevic at his trial at The Hague, aka a kangaroo court uh, by the Western powers. I've got absolutely no tolerance whatsoever or any credibility with any groups like the the, IS, the ICJ or the ICC when it comes to so-called international justice. I, I'm a sovereigntist. I believe in the Westphalian system of law, which is essentially what the UN Charter for all its flaws provides for. And the idea that you're going to drag another country into court when its vital interests are at stake at stake and actually expect them to abide by a court decision because a bunch of guys with with robes and some of them with funny wigs have decided something i think is is, is absolutely lacking in credibility i don't i don't give it much credibility i don't you know I, we could talk about the substance of the case that was presented at at the uh at the icj but i don't have much patience for this sort of thing and by the way i don't have much patience for all this kind of anti-colonial uh, and, and with all due respect to you, Dimitri, apartheid talk and all this other kind of stuff. You know, I realize that's the kind of, you know, third world global south talk we're supposed to engage in now. I don't buy it. I mean, frankly, tell me one country in Africa that's better off today than it was when it was a colony. A country like South Africa, where you have the, these horrible farm murders and things going on all the time, where people are openly calling for genocide of the white population. They're going to stand up and be a, a moral paragon in front of the West of the world. I mean, you know, people have asked me, oh, well, Jim, will you sign this petition in support of the South African case? No, I won't. I won't do it. I, I don't, it doesn't mean I don't disagree with, with a lot, uh, agree with a lot of what is being said in it, but I don't have any patience for these people and I don't think they have any credibility.
No, I think uh, I think we wanted your take. We wanted to hear you say that, Jim, because you could say it more eloquently than us. So I think Dimitri sometimes plays the <laughs> plays the plays the uh, third world advocate there. But I couldn't agree more. I think the um, the ICC and the ICJ are. I mean, the even the like international law as an idea. I think is uh, <laughs> I think is a bit ridiculous to begin with. Like you said, it kind of I think violates what we talked about in the. We talked about this on our previous episode, the very idea of laws within the Westphalian system, you know, these these are civilizational, you know, doctrines and and understandings that arise from a a broad, widespread culture. You can't have a there's no international culture per se that you can then, you know, a tradition that you can draw from to enforce and, and by the way, you let, know, some let me, kind let, of law. Let me throw another two kopecks in here if I can, is that you know, we hear a lot of times when we look at all the, you know, the rainbow propaganda and try to shove down the throat of the rest of the world all this, you know rainbow stuff or throw some other orifice that you want to shove it in and that this is neocolonialism this is coming from north america and western europe and it's the same countries that were the imperial powers in the 19th century that's true but look at the regimes in these countries they're all hostile to their own pop own population they're all determined to destroy their birth rate domestically and import uh, hordes of, uh, of of barbarians and to replace their own populations. So what kind of colonialism is that? What kind of neo-imperialism is that? There's something very backward about simply calling this a, a continuation of 500 years of Western colonialism. Yes, it is the same power, but in terms of the content of Christianity, nationality, the other things that, that motivated the old colonial empires, these are like anti-empires. They're trying to impose anti-values, anti-identity, not only on the rest of the world, but on their own populations. So I, I think just sort of saying, oh, 500 years of Western domination is coming to an end. Yes, in a sense, but it's coming to an end because the cultures and civilizations of those countries have turned into caricatures of themselves and are dominated by a ruling class that is hostile to their own traditions, identity, and people. Yeah, what I would say is that I'm against the British Empire because they allied with the Ottomans against the Russian Empire, not because they supposedly oppressed some people overseas at some point in some time, despite, you know, raising up their standard of living to the best they'd ever been able to experience it. But I think that's a good uh, way to transition a little bit into some of these other disputes going on in the Middle East surrounding the you know, surrounding the Gaza conflict, of course, whether it's the Houthis in Yemen or now what we see going on with Iran strikes across uh, Iraqi Kurdistan and Erbil hitting Mossad bases there, as well as strikes from both Pakistan and Iran now on each other's territories across the Balochi re region uh, against separatist groups. You know, Iran claims that one of these main separatist groups is funded by Israel. And of course, Pakistan, despite you know, responding to Iran has made it clear that they don't want any long-term conflict with Iran. And they also, of course, have problems with Balochi separatists. But of course, the powers that be were trying to stoke these border conflicts up into a broader conflict between two Muslim countries that up until this point have really sided with Gaza and the Palestinians at this point. So, uh, Jim, I'd love your broader kind of commentary on both the Kurdistan and the Balochi situations, because it seems that both of these, you know, nation states that haven't been recognized, for lack of a better word, of course, I'm not saying I support a Kurdish or Balochi state, but these are, you know, very cohesive states with militaries and militias and whatnot that represent an ethnic group that aren't represented, you know, at the United Nations per se. So I'm wondering your analysis of this sort of broader region. Yeah, I think it's a good parallel between the two, because there are a number of 
you know, well-defined ethnic groups that do not have their own state and are very unlikely to get their own state. But unfortunately, groups like that do provide a very, um, let's say, enticing invitation for outside powers to try to, you know, use them for their own ends. <laughs> Usually that ends up with the, the uh, whoever the ethnic group is being left in the lurch once the outside power loses interest and either fails or, or, or succeeds in gaining whatever political objectives they may have had in mind. The Kurds have been in that football situation for a very long time, and they probably will be in that situation forever, which means they'll probably have to reconcile themselves, uh, at least in a country like Syria, with some kind of a defined status that gives them some degree of uh, autonomy, maybe in Iraq also, some recognition of their ethnicity, language, and so forth, but they're not going to get their own state. I think that's even less true in the case of the Baluchis, although I think that it's, it's pretty clear that that there has been meddling from the outside to use the the uh, Baluchis as a uh, weapon against both Pakistan and Iran. So those two countries certainly have a joint interest in making sure that the, the Baluchis don't don't get out of control from their their perspectives. In terms of the Iranian strikes in Iraq, I mean, let's remember back when uh, it, in two thousand three when we invaded Iraq. Uh, the the genius neoconservatives behind that policy thought that the next domino to fall would be Iran. Uh, instead, what they did is they got rid of a secular Sunni anti-Iranian regime under Saddam Hussein and replaced it with a pro-Iranian Shiite majority regime in Iraq. In other words, the exact opposite of what their long-term policy goals would indicate. So you do have a lot of very, let's say, friendly, at least from Iran's point of view, people in Iraq. The Iraqis want the Americans out. The, they, those, those militias in Iraq are turning up the heat on the Americans. And I would say very carefully calibrating their strikes on, on, on the American, I would say, illegal presence in Iraq, because after all, the Iraqi parliament has asked us to leave. We won't, just won't do it. I think this is sort of in some ways comparable to what's going on in Israel's northern front with Hezbollah, where the, the side that's against the Americans and the Israelis is carefully escalating their heat on the the, the other side without providing a trigger that would would would, would uh, result in a, in a major sharp escalation, but that could come at any time. And of course, then we have the Americans striking back. You know, remember a couple of weeks ago, we killed the head of uh, an Iraqi militia uh, who was, you know, they said oh, this was an Iranian militia, but this is actually part of the Iraqi armed forces. So here we are launching attacks against legitimate political figures in what is supposed to be the host government in a country where American forces are stationed. So, you know, it's, it, 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 I, I think there's just more indication of there are many confusing cross currents throughout the region that involve any number of players, but at any time could assume very unexpected proportions. Yeah, and I think you correctly spoke about the fact that it does appear that foreign, at least third party influences coming in from the outside, actually stimulating some of these various uh, and quite confusing proxies. I think for the first time listening, you'd be like, huh, what are these groups? There's Kurds, there's these groups in Pakistan active. There's na naturally, we've heard about the Houthis quite a bit over the last few months. And of course, he Hezbollah and Hamas. And they, these, these are all painted as proxies in the Middle East for various powers and sources actually causing instability. But in fact, they're all following different particular goals. And Naturally, some of these groups are actually completely created in a, in a lab, essentially, after the, you know, aforementioned Iraq 
war, which the US, of course, defeated Iraq and colonized it and still there's bases in Iraq to this day. A lot of people don't realize, but yeah, um, Iran has been sending drones and using some of its covert tactics to actually harass these American bases in Iraq to try and pressure them out, or at least inform the Americans that, look, we aren't happy with you guys still being here, actually colonizing Mesopotamia like this. But naturally, Syria, again, ISIS is rising up all of a sudden since uh, the October attacks on Israel. All of these really toxic, uh, you would say, Islamist groups, which we've seen in Chechnya and Russia in the 90s and in, in the Middle East quite actively, especially uh, during this Syrian civil war quite recently. But naturally, it's almost as if it's all being stimulated from the outside. Now that Israel is actually in trouble, like you did mention the real risk to Israeli sovereignty for the first time in decades, suddenly all the guns are loaded and all, um, you know, the, the outside forces, whether, whether it be Mossad, CIA, are activating the various cells around the, around the Iran, especially pressuring the state, which does, won't submit to the, I guess you can call the New World Order, and especially which is trying to promote multipolarity and this BRICS unity. And they're trying to pressure Iran into, you know, especially stopping its aggressive, so-called aggressive foreign political um, ambitions, I think, in the region, which is very interesting. And, of course, you can't blame any of this on, naturally, the West is trying to very carefully not blame this on Islamic fundamentalism, because this now, as you mentioned, there's so many Muslim immigrants in Western countries, which you cannot trigger them. We've seen the London protests, the protests in the United States. It's, I mean, there's, especially in the cities, there's a really large Islamic population, so you can't paint in a broad brush all of these Muslims as, you know, being members of some fundamentalist religion, which is evil. So you can't use that rhetoric. You also can't blame the evil PSYOP dark covert Wagner, which has completely disappeared from the news since at least August, <laughs> September. So Wagner, notice Wagner has not been mentioned over the last four months. Besides that, early 2023, all we could hear about is Wagner in Africa. Remember Wagner in Syria, Wagner in Bakhmut, etc., etc. Now Wagner is completely gone. None of this can be blamed on on Russia. Essentially, it's similar to the election. Russia's meddling in Iran is like not mentioned. Russia's meddling in the Syria, considering the fact that look, the Russian air force is still actively has a cohort in Syria, and you know to this day they several times a week they do sorties and they do bomb some of these ISIS bases and things like that. So the Russian air force is actually active in Syria at the moment, but they're not getting any airtime. So it's interesting how the the arrows are being shifted to Iran. Turkey is not being mentioned as the potential like enemy, despite the fact that Turkey probably has like the largest claim to an Islamic caliphate, I would say, in the modern uh, Middle East. And naturally, Iran is being pressured from all sides by these various ethnic groups, which may or may not have legitimate claims to some sort of uh, perceived sovereignty or statehood and things like that. And of course, all of this is muddled up, as you said, in this third worldism where you have, and even, I mean, I don't want to blame the Palestinian people for this, but there is that consideration that the Palestinians are saying, we want a Palestinian state. But then you look at in, the reality of the fact is Palestine, it was always colonized by some large empire, whether it be Rome, uh, the Ottoman Empire before it, the Persians for a short time. It's always been subject to another greater power. At this point, this greater power is literally Zog. The Russian Empire in the future, of course. Well, look, I mean, we mentioned how if you look at uh, the first hierarch of Rokor, uh, Mitch Bolton, Anthony Krapovitsky, he was writing in his memoirs and then, you know, before he passed in the 1930s, like, wow, wouldn't have been lovely if, you know, Nicholas II, if revolution didn't take place and we would actually have a protectorate over Palestine and Palestinians could have pilgrimages all over Russia and the Russian Empire and we would have free, like, visa-free pilgrimages all over Israel and visit all the holy places. And he was, like, reminiscing in some of his writings, uh, 
uh, Metropolitan Anthony of Kiev and, you know, uh, new, essentially Rokor and stating that Russia and Palestine could work together and build this future world, like very fanciful, which didn't take place because of the revolution. But now now we have Israel. So this is the new world power dominating this area. But yes, Iran is the big baddie. And even the Houthis are, it's hard to paint the Houthis as these bad guys because, well, you have to either paint them in a very, like, I guess, so-called <laughs> quote-unquote racist way, like, oh, it's these, again, Middle Eastern sand pirates, right? They're raiding the ships like in Pirates of the Caribbean. It's like Somalian pirates, but you can't say that because, well, the Western countries have so many refugees. So I think even mainstream media is a bit confused on how to use, you know, the rhetorical weapon in the Middle East because the Russia, the Russian excuse is not available here. Yeah, and, the, the, um, you know, it's it's interesting. In Washington, of course, Everything, and this is, I think, what, what, where one of the big dangers are is that Iran, Iran, Iran is the root of all problems. You know, Iran is the problem in Yemen and Syria and Iraq and uh, in Lebanon. And of course, that's not true. I mean, the Iranians have a relationship with those, with, with the governments in, in Baghdad and Damascus, and also with the Hezbollah and with the, in the Ansar Allah in, in Yemen. But, you know, they don't control them. They're not proxies, as we, we keep trying to call them. I mean, they're, they're trying to sort of, depict them as this big Shiite menace. And of course the the Ansar Khalah are fivers and the uh and the Iranians are twelvers. They're not even really the same kind of Shiite. But you know, I'm I'm glad you mentioned uh Dimitri uh, ISIS because remember ISIS is the one that took credit for those bombings in Iran at the commemoration of uh, uh of the de death of Soleimani. And uh you know there's always been a real question Given our long-term use of, uh, of uh, Salafist Sunni radicals as a cat's paw in multiple conflicts in, in Chechnya, in Kosovo, in Bosnia, in Libya, in Syria, where did this, is, is, this ISIS come from? There was that uh, infamous 2012 Defense Intelligence Agency memo about the arising of a, Sal a Salafist uh, principality that would occur in eastern uh in eastern syria if we kept supporting these jihadist sunni groups against the uh the syrian government and that and uh and general flynn michael flynn said this was not an accident this was something that was being done deliberately by by the obama administration so then isis pops out into existence you've seen the reports of course that during the syrian war uh, ISIS uh, wounded personnel were being treated in Israeli hospitals. You notice that for all the boogeyman talk about ISIS, they never attack American interests or Israeli interests. So who's really controlling these guys, or at least using them uh, at least as, as some sort of, uh, you know, again, maybe proxy is not the right word, but a, a force that can have its uses. Now, Jim, I completely agree because, of course, there was the, it's supposedly been debunked, but yeah, there was even that Snowden rumor that it was at al-Baghdadi himself, one of the heads of ISIS at one point, was directly a Mossad agent. So mm -hmm. there's really the, – the fact that is that, sure, you can claim that all of these things around the world in the Shia crescent are quote-unquote Iranian proxies, despite the fact that they are just really somewhat united behind a loose Shia frame and united, of course, against Israel and the United States. And then if you're going to say that those are proxies, then you have to at least admit that you know ISIS, ISIS-K, and then, of course, all of the other – myriad of terrorist groups that make up the free syrian army and the other anti-assad mm -hmm. fronts in syria then those are of course israel those are israeli proxies because they they act as a whole lot more like proxies than these iranian groups do the houthis launch missiles at ships at their own discretion i highly doubt that isis k was always planning this attack directly on the soleimani tomb you know directly like right and it happens right when we need you know this division among the islamic world in iran i mean it's ridiculous and of course 
I'm pulling it up here one second. The Balochi separatists, I, I can't remember the exact name, but they are historically known to have been directly funded by Israel and Mossad as well. And like we said, that strike in Erbil and Kurdistan, that was mm -hmm. on a what was suspected by Iran to be a Mossad base. And of course, some, I think, American contacts were around there. And so the the intelligence and military communities had to be a little more hush-hush about exactly who has and hasn't died in these strikes. But that kind of says it all, doesn't it? That there's, you know, there's covert assets across all of this region. And to think that there's some kind of organic, you know, groups that are just all rising up against, for lack of a better term, the axis of resistance, I think that's a bit naive. That's right. Although I think at this point now, given, you know, back to where we started with Gaza, there may be not necessarily unity among these groups. Uh, and again, I'm not talking about ISIS, which I think very likely is some kind of a controlled entity, but even groups like, well, for example, let's take even Hamas and Hezbollah, who are on opposite sides of the Syrian civil war. I mean, it's it was uh -huh. not even really a civil war, the, the Syrian war, because Hamas is an arm of the Muslim Brotherhood. The Muslim Brotherhood was the primary domestic force in uh in in Syria kicking off the war against the the uh the uh, Damascus government and of course uh, Hezbollah very strongly supported the the Damascus government so even there th these are groups that are not necessarily on the same page in terms of their own their own traditional interests their their ideological religious uh, points of view but what thing one thing they do agree on right now is they don't like the Israelis and they don't want to go like what's going on in Gaza and they are then united with the populations in their regions, even though there are a lot of uh, governments in the region that see their stability at stake if they get involved in this and are trying not to, but probably are coming to realize at some point that they can't hold out forever. I think that brings us to a good place to talk about some of the stuff going on in Turkey. And again, it's not getting as much news coverage as obviously what's going on with Iran, because I think I think we're all aware of the broader spectrum here, which is that Israel and especially Netanyahu basically sees his political career is over and sees this conflict as a way to drag the U.S. and Iran into an existential conflict that will settle the score across the region to where greater Israel really is a possibility. And by greater Israel, we don't just mean, of course, like Jim mentioned earlier, how Netanyahu was being a little humble just talking about, you know, the West Bank and Gaza becoming exclusively Israeli. We're talking, like you said, from the Nile to the Euphrates is what I think a lot of people that have far too much power than you might suspect in Israel are, you know, that's what their dream is, right? So uh, we're seeing how across this region there is instability that they hope to exploit. And part of that instability, of course, comes from the Turkish front, which is oft forgotten as Erdogan and the more hardline you know, Turkish Nationalist Party, which you mentioned, Muslim Brotherhood and Hamas. And while they're not directly Muslim Brotherhood, the Turkish government is perhaps the most empowered state mm -hmm. that resembles and has sympathetically thought of the Muslim Brotherhood. There are some Muslim Brotherhood characters, I think, who have taken refuge in Turkey. And of course, you know, the sort of Islamist but secular presenting with the suits and everything, it's kind of the it's the same look, the same, the mm -hmm. same kind of root ideology that that Hamas and the Muslim Brotherhood have. So it makes sense that Erdogan is enthusiastically supporting Hamas. You won't see him saying the same thing, of course, about Hezbollah or any of these other Shia groups across the Middle East. But as Erdogan, I guess, attacks the uh, the Kurdistan region and these strikes are against PKK targets and these other separatist Kurdish groups that across Syria, across interior Turkey, across Iraq, Erbil being sort of the center of Kurdistan, these groups have caused a lot of trouble for Turkey. And in the past, the 
not in the past, rather, this past week, uh, this was reported by Turkish media, the head of the Turkish nationalist movement, basically one of Erdogan's biggest allies, Devlet Bacheli, he said that for the sake of Turkey security, the country's armed forces must create a belt of peace and calm 60 kilometers deep into northern Iraq. And this comes amidst rumors that I've heard that as Iran has struck out on targets across the border into Pakistan, you know, into Iraq, like we said, and of course, they've assisted in strikes across the region generally, that they may even be so bold to go after enemies and proxies operating out of Azerbaijan, which, like Dimitri said, is one of Israel's biggest allies in the region. So it seems that each of these powers, whether it's Turkey, whether it's Iran, have struck their external enemies funded by what they perceive as their you know, proxies funded by what they perceive as their broader existential enemies. And they've struck out into these groups with artillery, with broader military action. And I think the only country that isn't doing this right now that is a sort of Islamic civilization state is the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. And there's, mm -hmm. it's very clear that the U.S. is trying to get the Saudis perhaps to take on, you know, to basically revive the Yemeni-Saudi war that we had been funding for years and years and years to the tunes of millions of dollars up until, what was it, 2022, you might know better than me, Jim, but that war was going on for a very long time. And now the Saudis are very remiss to start that up with the Houthis again. So again, this whole region is, is I mean, I think World War III is, isn't even an exaggeration at this point when it comes to this region, especially as, you know, with, when you understand the sort of shadow front with Turkey and Kurdistan. Yes. And again, this is where we get all these you know, strange bedfellows and cross currents. You mentioned Azerbaijan. Of course, remember that both the Turks and the Israelis, who are not getting along, supported Azerbaijan in the war against the Armenians and their basically rolling up of Nagorno-Karabakh. Uh, at, at the same time, the Saudis are, I think, one reason they do have cold feet about getting involved again in, in Yemen is, first off, I'm sure a lot of the Saudi population is perfectly thrilled to see the the, the Houthis show, shoot missiles at ships heading for Israel because they, they sympathize with the people in Gaza. And, and, and that's despite the fact that the Saudi government uh, does not like the Muslim Brotherhood. The, the Saudis had supported Muslim Brotherhood some years ago, but what they don't like is the populism. And you can see from a, from a, a monarchy's point of view why a populist group like the Muslim Brotherhood is not popular in a place like Riyadh, although, as I say, Qatar still so supports them very strongly. So you have these, these cross currents where, okay, the Saudis on the one hand, they don't like the Muslim Brotherhood, but they but they don't want to get mixed up again with the Houthis because the Houthis are shooting at Israeli shipping, and plus their relationship with the Iranians has improved. So why would they feel necessarily the need to go into Yemen again if, you know, what, what, what would they accomplish by doing that, especially since they sailed, failed so badly? Uh, for the last few years when they were deeply involved in Yemen. As far as the, the, the Turks go, yeah, you're right. They have a very strong relationship. I mean, when I say the Turks, I mean Erdogan has a very strong relationship with the Muslim Brotherhood. And this is partly why he has such a high standing in the uh, in the uh, Sunni world. Uh, and uh, it also then puts him at odds to some extent with uh, the countries like the Saudis that don't like the Brotherhood. And also think about Egypt, where, again, the Muslim Brotherhood are the, the main domestic threat to the al-Sisi government. So, you know, again, all of these lines don't necessarily add up the same way. I mean, people, countries A and B can be adversaries with regard to one conflict, but then be on the same page with regard to a different conflict. 
Yeah, of course. And, you know, uh, while we're on the subject of Azerbaijan, very briefly, there have been rumors, of course, the Aliyev family, very influential in the late Soviet Union. But from what we know about Soviet elites as such, if you want to get down to the crux of it, you would need to investigate the wives, the mothers, the grandmothers of some of these leaders. And the Aliyev family, there have been some suspicions amongst uh, Russian patriotic circles that, you know, who exactly are they ethnically? Are they uh, local Azeris? Or is there a bit of a, shall we say, Israeli admixture, which you know gives them that bit of a flavor? Because as we know, in pre-revolutionary times, the famous banking Rothschild's family had huge interests in actually investing in that Caspian Sea, that oil trade and the coming out of that Azerbaijan, Russian Imperial, Northern Iranian region. And maybe to this day, they have a certain local herod actually at the head of this particular, you know, neo-Turkic state. But I mean, this is all speculation. But moving forward, of course, uh, while we're on the subject of Turkey as well, it's it's worth mentioning the fact that the grain deal is still ex experiencing struggles. The Ukrainian foreign minister, Vazil Bodnar, 47-year-old foreign minister, by the way. So Ukraine is very young, talented people uh, in power at the moment, which is great. Uh, he states, unfortunately, the grain initiative is not functioning at the moment, although certain negotiations are ongoing to find a format for possible assistance from international partners to Ukraine. So he's not talking about a multilateral solution between Turkey, Russia and Ukraine, right? These free partners who essentially can resolve the grain deal, which hasn't been functioning since July 2023, by the way. So proper grain shippage has been uh, somewhat stalled. And, you know, this is important because when we speak about, you know, Orthodox prophecies sometimes, a lot of the very eschatological prophecies, and even in the book of Revelations itself, there is the talk of famine. And it's like in the modern world, you know, we bring up the subject of famine quite a bit. And it's like, okay, it's something that happens in Africa, maybe in the Middle East, in some, you know, uh, mountainous province, but it's not something that can affect the Western world. And yet we see the, these Operation Prosperity Guardian, the crisis in the Red Sea, crisis in, in the Black Sea and Bosphorus, these countries which produce most of the world's food. And naturally, in the US, this massive farm takeover by Bill Gates, BlackRock, all these things we kind of see occurring in the background. In the, in the next 50 to 100 years, we could see some of these, you know, once these trade routes are placed at risk, actual risks of food shortages, or at least of nutritious food, which, you know, we generally need in a balanced diet around the world, you know, will all be placed on some sort of ascetic diet, uh, you know, some sort of fasting regime, possibly of eating uh, World Economic Forum uh, mandated cockroaches or something. Who knows what these people plan for us? But <laughs> there is that risk of potential, you know, just to keep keep it in mind, this is what people are worried about. It's like the grain shippage, actual food for the first time in modern history, where you know this is actually a problem for Western countries and for those countries in the Mediterranean. But moving along, so Ukraine naturally is not willing to deal with Russia, and the foreign minister didn't mention Russia at all. And naturally, what can Turkey and Ukraine do together? And the ports are always at risk, mind you. The main ports, of course, are in the city of Nikolaev, which is very close to Kherson, just north of it. The city is set up by uh, Grigory Potemkin and Catherine the Great in the seven, late 1700s. Nikolaev is a very famous city named named after St. Nicholas, the miracle worker, who the Ukrainians translated to Mikolaev with an M, like it's named after Mickey Mouse or something. It's very bizarre. But a city named after St. Nicholas is one of the main Ukrainian ports for these exports. And naturally, it's always come up in discussions, right? We mentioned the Donetsk, Lugansk, Kherson leaders, whenever they talk about Russian SMO actually pushing it further, they always talk about Kherson, Odessa, Nikolaev. So these once these cities are taken, you have to understand if they are taken in the near future, maybe 2024 or 2025, we'll see the grain deal question come up again. Exactly who will be exporting all this food out to the rest of the world because Ukraine and Russia do account for a lot of these agricultural exports. Very 
key questions here. Now, of course, the world could go into another some sort of crisis in the future if Russia decides to actually put its foot down. And of course, now that we're on the subject, Ukraine, Russia, what's been happening here? So in the Donetsk Oblast, the village of Visolia, which means which translates to happiness, actually, or like the fun village, <laughs> was captured by Russian forces as they're pushing further towards Avdiivka. The surround is still happening in Zelensky who actually visited the outskirts of Avdiivka recently. We mentioned this last week. The man is a complete, is, is, is a crazy lunatic, and he understands for some reason Russia isn't willing to take him out as a figure. Actually travels to the outskirts of a city similar to Bakhmut being besieged heavily by Russia, and Avdiivka still being heavily defended. It looks like a second Bakhmut of some sort. But at least at this point, I think we can say strategically Avdiivka is even more important than Bakhmut because of the fact that Ukrainian artillery was positioned in this town and has been bombarding Donetsk for the last six to eight, you know, almost nine, ten years at this point, because we are reaching that 10 year anniversary since the April 2014 events, which essentially kicked off the the Ukrainian Donetsk Lugansk war. Of course, it's very um, curious to see exactly how Zelensky will act after this World Economic Forum Davos discourse. Will he actually be prompted by these world globalist Masonic, um, you know, Judeo-Talmudic leaders to actually force a peace talk because Putin, I want to say like Lukashenko has influenced Putin to some respect and I think a lot of Russian elites after, you know, two and a, two years of more or less uh, SMO type action, it's, it's been a little bit intense and I think there is pressure on United Russia and Putin to actually potentially come, come up with a potential deal of at least dealing and seizing at least a portion of Ukrainian territory and actually having a ceasefire for some time so that at least the economy can relax slightly. But Again, the the cards are in Zelensky's hands, and I don't think the Joker is willing to play properly because at this at the moment it's almost as if since Boris Johnson's time, right? Since you know he essentially screwed up that peace deal with Turkey early on in 2022, there has been no real proposal since Medinsky met with the foreign minister of Ukraine in Turkey in Istanbul uh, in Ankara. There's really no no real proposal on the table. I think for Russia to actually take. And so we have rhetoric from people like Medvedev, and of course, uh, you know, I mentioned Medvedev all due respect, but he has been posting some very interesting stuff over the last year. Uh, but uh, Foreign Minister Lavrov, a more serious character in a, in a three-hour press conference, actually gave his opinion a bit more strongly. I think we should probably comment on that because it's, you know, it's his annual press conference. He sits, sits there for three to four hours, answers these really difficult questions. And of course, he's asked about the SMO, Ukraine, and he essentially just speaks out about Ukraine needs to be divided, and it's the first time this balanced, you know, this, uh, you have to understand Lavrov, Lavrov is this foreign political uh, prodigy, essentially a prodigy of diplomacy. Since, I think, the age of 18, or maybe shortly after he completed his degree, he actually went to work at the United Nations, and he's been working in diplomacy his entire life, literally since uh, since he graduated from high school. So he has the experience of maybe 40 plus years working in this field actively. He's not retired, and he doesn't look like he's retiring. So his professional opinion on the Ukrainian issue, I think, is very important to break down. Well, there's a lot there, Dimitri. I, I don't know where the Ukrainians, or for that matter, the Poles, got this turn in and names like Nikolai into Mikola and M. I mean, that seems to be unique to those two languages. Uh, go figure. <laughs> when you started talking about the Aliyah family's ethnicity, I thought you were going to say they were Khazars, but that's, I guess, a whole different theory there. You know, this green thing, uh, you know, a, a Blinken, I guess, can't help himself to lie every time he says something. This is, seems to become a standard line now coming from, and who's the guy? Uh, Shaps, I think, who's the British, um, what is he, the uh, defense secretary there. 
in in Britain, they keep using this phrase that that the Ukrainians have opened up the grain corridor, basically by force of arms or something. So they're under they're trying to claim that that corridor is actually open, and the Ukrainians have blasted their way unilaterally through the Russian forces. Uh, again, I don't know what they're drinking or where I can get a case of it, but it's you know it seems to be completely divorced from reality. Uh, back to Zelensky, I mean, you know, again, uh, I, you know, we, we hear this all the time that, oh, they could have had a deal in uh, April of last year, but Boris Johnson shot it down. I, I, with all due respect, I don't buy that because all they would have gotten was a Minsk three. They would have gotten another pack of lies on a deal that the Western powers had absolutely no intention of, uh, of, of agreeing to. Oh, they agreed to no NATO for Ukraine. Would they have kept that deal? In fact, it really isn't the question of do they formally become a member of NATO, but rather are they de facto a NATO state because they've been built up as a NATO military, which is what has been happening uh, over the years preceding preceding this conflict. So I don't think there was any prospect of a deal then. The idea that the Russians were still naive enough to think that they had a deal, frankly, I find a little bit worrisome as 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 also this kind of talk that, well, maybe there should be some deal on the table and Look, if the Russians at this point still don't understand that there's nobody they can talk to on the other side, forget Kiev, but Washington, London, and the rest of those characters, then I really do wonder if they are capable of learning at all, or whether they've simply just decided that this thing has to, you know, this thing has to end, and there's only one way to end it, and that's militarily. And if they're coming around to the conclusion that, yeah. That means that there can be no more Ukrainian state. From their point of view, I don't see any other rational outcome. Have they gotten to that point yet? I honestly do not know, because they seem to hold out this fantasy of some sort that, okay, finally now they've gotten the message and we can start, let's have a ceasefire and we can have some real diplomacy going on. I think the chances of that are absolutely zero, because they're dealing with essentially psychopathic characters on the other side who don't even value their own country's interests, much less would they respect legitimate, legitimate Russian interests. As far as Zelensky goes, you know, you know, there's been this story being peddled around for several months now that, oh, there are people in Kiev would really like to wake up and smell the kvass and come to a deal with, with the Russians. But Zelensky, he's delusional. He still believes in uh, victory and he's demanding that they keep launching these attacks and the Zelensky Zelensky. Honestly, I don't buy that either. Who is Zelensky? He's nobody. He's zero. He's, he's this ridiculous actor that plays, you know, a piano without his hands. And the idea that he, because he's delusional, is forcing all these people to go in there and die doesn't doesn't hold water, in my opinion. I mean, after all, Trump was president in an administration in a country that had a lot more still has relatively speaking, a lot more legal and uh, constitutional integrity than Ukraine does, he couldn't get anybody in his administration to do what he wanted under far less dire circumstances than Zelensky faces. So the question for me is not whether Zelensky is delusional, but rather who's still backing Zelensky up? Is which, which of the radical, maybe nationalist forces in Ukraine are still backing Zelensky? Which of the forces abroad that are backing Zelensky. Uh, you may recall a couple months ago, there was an article in the Washington Post, uh, aka Langley's Bulletin Board, uh, trying to revive that, uh, you know, that, that that notion that Nord Stream 2 was blown up by, uh, you know, the, the Gilligan and the Skipper on the Minnow with help from the professor in Ginger, and, uh, and that Zeluzhny was the guy behind it. And what that told me is, aha, the CIA is still backing Zelensky, 
and 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 they're and they're and they're opposed to Zeluzhny. I've heard rumors that Zeluzhny is being supported by MI6. So maybe what we really have is 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 some of the backers of various factions within the Kiev regime are still backing them up. And that's why Zelensky is still in a position where he can demand this, demand that, because there are forces behind him that are still still empowering him to act as the, you know, sort of the, the paper cutout president of Ukraine. Uh, I think that's where the real action is. Who are the forces behind them? In the, not even necessarily limited to Ukraine, but especially abroad and particularly inside the American and British governments. Well, it's a really good point about the infighting among the different factions of the global American empire of the Zog system that have, you know, their tentacles among these different characters, because that's something that, again, some people want to believe. All, some people just want to dump this all on Zelensky, just like some conservatives really want to dump it all on Biden. And really talking about Zelensky or Biden too much is a mm-hmm. complete waste of time about, from both of those perspectives. But I think, uh, Jim, you're underestimating Boris Johnson was actually people don't know this actually he was an agent of, of igor strelkov and the patriots in russia to prevent minsk 3 from happening actually they deployed him <laughs> and because uh, they knew that they knew that the russian deep state was going to was going to make the wrong call there so so they so they deployed bojo but uh, <laughs> i i digress on that on that joke but that's as good an explanation as i've heard i, I like it i like it let's uh, let's go, let's run with that let's go with it but the um you mentioned how russia seems still like they want to negotiate with the West in some capacity and think that there's people that can be reasoned with. And I, I th- I'm sure there's some people that don't think that, but some people definitely at very high levels of power do definitely think that. And my perspective for a while has been that the broader World War III phenomenon, you know, whether whether you believe it was prophesied or not, I think will, especially when you see the Israel situation and you see stuff in the Caucasus and you see, you know, some of these developments in Finland and in uh, the Balkans, I think in a lot of ways, Russia will be forced to make, for lack of a better word, the right decision based on just the unfolding of what appears to be the the slowly cascading third world war around us that is, you know, the rise of multipolarity, the collapse of the unipolar world, mm-hmm. I think, a widespread religious reshuffle along with, of course, the mass demographic shift of the global south to the global north, all of these phenomena are going to massively disrupt the world coupled with of course the desire of zionist jews to rebuild the third temple at with america as their golem it, it is going to i think ultimately force russia to to think about it existentially of course which is how they think about it but that existential thought will lead them to do the correct thing which ultimately will be to take most of ukraine which ultimately will be to reunify with belarus which i think ultimately will be have to operate much more strongly with your soft power in the balkans and these regions and whatnot and probably uh, operate even much more strongly with your allies in the Middle East at a certain degree. So I think uh, that's the only way that we're going to get, we're not necessarily going to get the strategic right call that you, I think, are advising, Jim, and I would agree with. I think they're going to have to be forced into this one. Well, and, you know, I say advising too, because as I say, that's the way I would look at it if I were in their shoes. But one of the things I've always noticed about the Russians, they never do, they never think what I would do or think in the, in their shoes. They always have a different way of looking at it. Now, one reason I, I think it would be not only their interest and frankly, in our interests, and, and again, I you know, as, as an American, uh, somebody of Greek origin, of course, an Orthodox Christian, I do feel I have a stake in, in the future of my country, but also in the European civilization as a whole, which, as, as we all know, is in very sad shape by and large because of the, the kind of leadership we have. And let's face it, the, the kind of um, corruption that has existed, you know, uh, morally, religiously, and so forth, even among the the population. 
of most of these these countries, all of these countries. I mean, again, you know, we we're, you know we, we may get around to the topic where Prime Minister Mitsotakis in Greece is trying to force gay marriage uh, in 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 Greece uh, to please his masters in Washington and Brussels. So um, that having been said, though, if this war it, it can be put to bed, so to speak, by a Russian victory that that erases the Ukrainian state. I think that will have shockwaves across the 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 basically it'll, it'll put the kibosh on the uh, on the uh, DC uh, based unipolar or order, and I think that will have then important domestic consequences inside the United States and in the countries of Europe, where I think you know, as we see, for example, the German farmers protesting and so forth. There's increasing resistance to the kind of regimes we've had. And, and 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 I think a more uh, palpable demand by ordinary people to have some kind of normalcy in their lives, a discontent with the kind of uh, of, of ridiculous people that have been running these countries for so many decades. Uh, you know, that's what's behind the Trump movement. Aside from you know the pluses and minuses of Trump as a person, it's pretty clear that what lies behind him is a lot of you know you know those so-called deplorables, just regular ordinary Americanos. Who, who have had it? You know who was that? Joy Reid on uh, was it MSNBC was saying, well, the problem with the Iowa caucuses and the big win for Trump is it's terrible. There's just too many white Christians in Iowa. How horrible! Well, what yeah, did, yeah. Well, what did Brother white Nathaniel? Christians, my, did, my goodness, in America, whoever let them in? What did Brother Nathaniel say? He said that you know they don't necessarily fear Trump; they fear his patriotic white Christian supporters. Yeah, well, exactly. Is... And Trump it would never use that kind of language, but he does say to his uh, his supporters, "It's not so much me they hate; it's you they hate. They have to come through me through me to get to you." There, there's a lot of truth to that, and because if it if for for you know when you look at the the whole sort of lineup of you know racial, sexual, linguistic, uh, migrational, and other anti-America, the alternative America that's opposed to the traditional America, it does tend to lie in the lineup uh, in that in that way. And, and Trump is kind of an avatar for that. And I think you'll find that increasingly with other forces in Europe, and maybe even in Europe, given that you have parliamentary systems there, a better prospect that some of those may actually get into power at some point, as opposed to America, where I, I think it's pretty clear at this point, Trump is going to be the nominee unless they can take him out either through legal process or by some other means. But uh, I think he's very unlikely to be elected. Very interesting. Just before we transition away from that, northern european region you know speaking about ukraine russia there has been a very peculiar development actually countries of nato have reported gps issues just around kaliningrad former the former prussian capital of konigsberg which uh, we've spoken about on previous episodes as being the russian outpost literally surrounded by nato countries it is mm -hmm. uh, you know geographically separated from russia adjacent to Germany, Poland, uh, you know, and of course the Baltic countries surrounding the Baltic Sea. So there's this particular thing that took place uh, in the last week where uh, Polish, Lithuanian GPS has stopped working around Kaliningrad. You know, they've been experiencing technological issues, and it's it's been reported by Business Insider, Reuters, Times that potentially Russia is issuing some sort of new EMP type technology, at least disrupting some of these electro. I don't know, um, electro-satellite-related connections in that particular region, which is pretty cool. And naturally, you know, there are no sort of issues with people getting hurt or anything. It's just simply the Russians testing out this new sci-fi level of tech 
prior to its implementation. You know, frankly, we thought this was implemented maybe in early 2022 when the SMO began because it was kind of like a breakdown of an absence of footage initially in the first few hours of the uh, conflict. So a lot of people were reporting maybe Russians actually activated some sort of mass EMP technology, but that wasn't really the case. It's just Ukraine was so caught off guard. Uh, on in February of 22, but very interesting uh, developments in Kaliningrad, and of course the the, the Baltic states are very much uh, under pressure at the moment. They really feel they're really bolstering up their uh, militaries with NATO because they're considering the fact that maybe they'll be next. And in fact, some of the rhetoric and people like Medvedev and other Russian members of the Duma have pointed out that these uh, Ostlan German countries in the Balkans, these former Teutonic night colonies are essentially uh, up, uh, essentially formally Russian. And in fact, if anything, historically, they've assimilated into Russia in the best way possible. Tsar Alexander III, the father of Nicholas II, he actually implemented some pretty uh, rigorous and very sensible Russification policies in those Baltic regions, which came up with immense, really, really positive results, actually. Those Ostland Germans living in that Baltic region became literally the most loyal German cohorts of the Russian military. During World War I, not a single German background heritage officer defected from the Russian Imperial Army. If you can consider that, that's crazy, considering the revolution literally took place. So not a single, and a lot of, there was a lot of Germans in the Russian army, but no Ostland Germans mm -hmm. from the Baltics ever defected to the German or Austrian army. So that's crazy, considering World War II, what the heck was happening with Vlasov, Krasnov, all of those, you know, defectors to Nazi Germany, which was even a bit more foreign, you know, to the Russian taste than maybe even Kaiser Wilhelm's empire. But Well, you know, it, mm -hmm. it, it's interesting uh, with regard to the Baltic states, and I would also include Finland there because... There's also the, uh, you know, if you look at just, just try this experiment, go to Wikipedia, look up Finnish literature, Estonian literature, Latvian literature, and Lithuanian literature. And you'll find out that none of those existed until the 19th century. That basically until the 19th century, Lithuanian literature, and there was a Lithuanian state in the Middle Ages of those four countries, that's the only one that had a history of statehood at all. Until the 19th century, Lithuanian literature meant Polish literature, that Estonian mm -hmm. and Latvian literature meant German literature, Finnish literature meant Swedish literature. They did not have their own literature or even national high culture until they were able to achieve it for the first time under the liberating scepter of the Russian Empire. That was the first time those nations, and in the case of the Estonians and Latvians in particular, even thought of themselves as, as, as a nation as such, even in Finland, what were they when they were part of uh, Sweden? They didn't have a grand duchy inside uh, inside Sweden. They were just basically considered backward tribal people in the eastern part of the Swedish Empire. It was only in Russia under the grand duchy of uh, Finland uh, that they had their own independent administration. Basically, was the only thing that the Russians controlled was their foreign affairs and the military policy, and they basically govern their own affairs as a constitutional grand duchy, yet they have this great resentment of, of the Russians because, oh, well, because the Soviet period, which, uh, be, but, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, how much was the Soviet government, especially in its initiation, a Russian government, and if it hadn't been for Latvian riflemen and Latvian Czechists, would there even have been a Soviet government? So, you know, these people are very big on getting on their high horse, their mouth, their mouth that roared in terms of their pick squeak antipathy toward Russia, like like the United States is going to threaten our own existence over these these pipsqueak little countries. But they don't seem to have any understanding of their own history or geography. Yeah, of course. And, you know, while we're still on the subject of, you know, Russification and the threats of that Russia may bring to these areas, let's just remember the venerable late 
Patriarch Alexei II of Moscow, who was actually born mm-hmm. in Tallinn, Estonia, and his last name, Ridiger, that, that is a Baltic German yeah. last name. That is his heritage. That his family is a direct they're directly descendants of those Baltic Germans who, you know, were you were sort of the the subjects of Tsar Alexander III's very wise russification policies. Because again, these these countries they either they ever come under the influence of Germ- the powerful Central European Germanic empires or they come under the influence of Russia. There's no real alternative. And in fact, their local cultures, yes, you're right, completely thrived. Finland, of course, gained incredible autonomy, which even Manor Game during you know World War II and during the Russian Civil War could not deny. Of course, he remained like a, or like he wrote great things about Tsar Nicholas II, despite the fact that he was technically yeah, like, and he was yeah. he was a Swede of German origin. You know, I mean, there's you know mm-hmm. again these things are all mixed. But I'm glad you mentioned Patriarch Alexei uh, Ridiger. You know, he of course got along pretty well with Pope Benedict Ratzinger. I mean, Ratzinger and Ridiger literally spoke the same language. So you Greeks and Russians are saying a German like me can be a subject of the empire as well. I'll be. <laughs> I guess so. Well, of course, I th- what did didn't Nicholas II have a lot more German blood than he did uh, Russian blood? That's true. That is that is true. I mean, that's why he looks exactly like you know. And of course, the the the, the, the empress as well was a German. That's right. It really shows the power of you know the European ability to assimilate into each other's cultures, which I think was given given life in, in the Americas where you had immigrants, you had Marquis de Lafayette, you had uh, George Washington, you had all these immigrants yeah, from different yeah. countries, and they cr- literally created a new state with little, no tension between Irishmen, Englishmen, no, no offense to the Irish, of course, uh, being European and white, but <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, Frenchmen. Well, 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 you know, when, yeah. when you mentioned World War One and the and the Baltic Germans, I mean, sometimes you look at some of these battles and look at the, the generals in charge of either side of the battle, it's hard to tell which is the German. German army and which is the Russian army based on their surnames. A hundred percent. I mean, the, the broader, the, the broader image here is that I think generally speaking, we shouldn't trust the mainstream media when they say Rus- you know, Russification, Russia obtaining certain territories in the near future is some terrible thing or that imperialism, you know, even that third world is, uh, you know, tactic of rhetorically saying colonial imperialism is bad. We have to understand colonial imperialism is gone. It's not coming back. The globalists have changed their worldview plan. I mean, this is it's just a boogeyman from the past. And if anything, it's a rhetorical tactic in order to maybe even attack future Orthodox, you know, just shall we say the future Orthodox empire, which will be rebuilt, hopefully by the prophecies in the near, in the near, in the near decades, if not centuries. So we have to just consider the fact that they're using this anti-imperial tactic. Yes, of course, locally, maybe to their benefit. Um, I mean, I'm talking about the third worlders type people who push this sort of diplomacy. But we do have to consider the fact that empire in and of itself for us Orthodox Christians is a good positive thing. I know you guys know that, but maybe the listeners, they're still maybe on the fence about this. But I think just consider reading about um, all these considerations. Now, as we're leaving uh, you know, World War One, World War Two, Konigsberg, Kaliningrad, it's just important to consider if a you know, third world war breaks out, a very hot one with nuclear missiles being used, things like that, Kaliningrad will be that frontal outpost for the for the russian military in literally surrounded by nato NATO countries i don't even want to think about what kind of technology is hidden in some of these underground bases in konigsberg like this it may be quite intense and you know it's it's worth reading up you know if you're interested in siegecraft go read about the siege of the the soviet siege of konigsberg in 1945 that's how you take cities and i think maybe some people in the russian military i'm sure they understand what siegecraft is but in terms of modern siegecraft how you take a city in mere days by surrounding it unlike bakhmut which you know was a little bit messy and i think caught the eyes of the media for a bit too long but moving along to 
Serbia, naturally, World War I, Russia's greatest ally, is still experiencing difficulties. Now, back in those days, at least Russia could support Serbian sovereignty. Nicholas II was good friends with Tsar Alexander of Yugoslavia and the southern Serbs. But at this point, it does appear that naturally Serbia is constantly under pressure by both the EU and then internally by its patriots who actually want to move Serbian sovereignty forward. They want to, you know, some sort of resolution. They want Serbian rights in Kosovo at the very minimum. And of course, the Respublika Srpska uh, compatriots want some sort of reunification. And naturally, the church is somewhat involved trying to balance all of this together. And the new patriarch, we're not too sure what his position is. Is he as conservative as maybe the you know patriarch Paul, or is he more liberal like the patriarch, uh, the previous one before him, uh, you know, of good memory, but still not not quite as, say, conservative as Patriarch Paul of Serbia at this point, but very interesting developments in that particular part of the world. And Russia is a little bit too preoccupied. You know, the Western media is blaming Russia on having influencing the Respublika Srpska, which, I mean, Jim, you'd probably speak about that. It's probably fallacious, right? I think the Serbs can, I don't think they're actually under Russia's influence. If anything, the Serbs are actually leading forward the Slavic patriotism, which uh, hopefully is rising around the world. But uh, maybe if you can comment on that, Jim, just Respublika Srpska, what are your opinions, given that you're quite the expert in this particular Balkan region? I think of any of us here, you probably know the most. What is happening in that region? We've covered it for a few months now, and all of last year we've been speaking about Vucic, Dodik, all of these major characters in that particular area of the world. So what would be your particular opinion at this point, given that we're in early yeah, well, 2024? I was in, I, I was in uh, both Belgrade last month and also Banja Luka, the capital of Republika Srpska. There was a great conference in Banja Luka, uh, presided over by President Dodik with representatives of, you know, AFD and a lot of other uh, national parties from around uh, Europe. A very, very good people, very good support for uh, uh, Republika Srpska's uh, 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 struggle to hold on to the autonomy that it achieved under the Dayton Agreement. Uh, you know, not that Dayton was anything to write home about, but, you know, if that's the agreement, stick to the agreement instead of keep trying to encroach against the agreement, which Washington and Brussels keep trying to do uh, to try to push it in the direction of a unitary Muslim-dominated state, which, by the way, was always the goal of Washington ever since the, the Bosnian War in, in the mid-1990s. So, you know, I think Mr. Dodik, with the very strong support of the people in Republika Srpska, is holding out heroically against that. In Serbia, things are a little more complicated because Vucic, uh, you know, not to be, you know, necessarily uh, either pro-Vucic or anti-Vucic, he's a slippery character. And you can understand, given his position, in a way, he's sort of doing what uh, 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 Yanukovych unsuccessfully tried to do and what Lukashenko successfully tried to do uh, until he was forced into the Russian camp entirely by the effort to overthrow him through a color revolution, is to try to balance between the East and the West, between the Russians and the and the, and the NATO powers. And uh, Vucic, of course, is in a, in a far weaker position than anybody in in uh, Kiev or uh, or uh, Minsk would be because he has no border with Russia. The Russians don't have any way to get to him directly in order to support uh, Serbia. Uh, the the mm -hmm. Serbian people, I think, are very strongly uh, pro-Russian uh, in, in a large majority and anti-NATO, of course, being bombed by NATO tends to you know affect people's outlook on that. But on the other hand, there is so much influence, so much money and, uh, and, and political intrigue from the Western powers, from the Soros groups and all the rest of them, that it, you know, it clearly puts uh, Vucic in a very difficult position where 
you don't really know. Is he going to stand up strongly for Serbian interests, or is he going to finally throw in the towel, for example, on Kosovo? Now, people tell me if he did that, he'd be hanging from a lamppost in Belgrade. So we'll see. I mean, I, I think he probably will keep trying to oscillate between the West and between the Russians, try to be friendly with both to maximize his his room for maneuver without throwing in the towel on, on, on Kosovo and, uh, and then see what happens. I mean, the fact is, that if we're right, that the unipolar order is going down, that maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but in the not too distant future is going to create some opportunities for Serbia. Because when all said and done, that fake state called Kosovo is simply that. It's simply a product of NATO and EU occupation. And if that ends, so does the Kosovo state. So I think that the, the not just the long term, but the midterm prospects for Serbia are very good as long as they don't give too much away in the meantime, while they're still in a relatively weak position. And while, why the, while the Western empire of lies is looking for other asymmetrical ways they can kick back against, uh, the, if you will, the Eurasian powers, because obviously things are not going well in Ukraine. They're facing God knows what kind of blow up in the Middle East. So they're gonna be looking for other places. So they go, well, here's one where we can, we can score a cheap win. And maybe they see Serbia as a potential target of doing that. That's why we've been seeing these mass demonstrations with, you know, essentially astroturf grassroots being dragged down on the street. I don't think that's enough to overturn the government in Belgrade, however, and they can weather that. Yeah, but those are all good points. I want to know your take on the potential for whether it be independent Srpska or a future referendum in Srpska on rejoining Serbia. I know Dodik has explicitly said that I believe if Christian Schmidt comes and tries to enforce i believe it's a certain property law in and across yeah. all of bosnia and herzegovina that he would declare independence someone talked about it by 2025 that is something that he's trying to achieve anyway i'm wondering your thoughts on the possibility of that and then obviously it's a deep question what's the solution to the kosovo crisis but what do you see as the the obviously the patriotic serb would want you know to repatriate all of the kosovars back to albania and have all of kosovo be serbian again but i'm wondering what is a more reasonable solution against you know the eventually just agreeing to having kosovo statehood of course but i want to hear mostly your thoughts on the potential for independent or rather a rejoinder with serbska and serbia what what what's going to go on there in the next few years you know, I can't speak for President Dodik, obviously, or for Bosnian Serbs in general, but uh, I, I think there are a couple of things we need to keep in mind. As as I mentioned, Serbia's, you know, geostrategic position is, is is precarious by, you know, inherently. It's a landlocked country, surrounded by NATO countries. It has no real access to the outside world since we ripped off Montenegro from, from Serbia. There's some access through the Danube, which is an international waterway. I don't know how much help anybody can really expect from that direction if there's a real crisis. Republic of Serbska is an even more precarious position. I mean, first off, it's not a sovereign state. It's an entity under the Dayton Agreement. Its, its geographic position is even more precarious than Serbia's. It's much more isolated even than Serbia's. Plus, even within Republic of Serbska, it's not really contiguous because you got the whole problem with Birchko, which is jointly controlled between the Republic of Serbska and the Federation of, um, of Bosnia and Herzegovina, which is the uh, Muslim Croat entity. So there's not even a connection between the two main parts of Republic of Srpska. Can uh, President Dodik push through with some kind of a, a move toward independence in the future? 
I'm not going to rule it out, but I think it's going to be extremely difficult under the best of circumstances. Even if they did do that, then the question is, you mentioned whether they would then join with Serbia. I don't know. And I don't know if that would be a good idea for Republika Srpska, because Serbia has its own problems. And then sort of folding Republika Srpska into Serbia and make it dependent then on what the government in Belgrade thinks is not necessarily going to work out very well for Republika Srpska. So there are a lot of complications there. Uh, moving to uh, to uh, Kosovo, first off, there's a real question how many Albanians are left in Kosovo right now. Uh, I've heard estimates that there could be as few as 500,000, that a lot of them have left and gone to Europe. And uh, and I don't think that if Serbia were to regain Kosovo in the, in the not-too-distant future, and I, by the way, I'm morally convinced they will. I don't know whether it'll be five years or 10 years or maybe even less than that, but I think they will. I mean, I don't think there would be any question of expelling the Albanians from Kosovo, because, you know, look, there are Albanians in, in South Serbia now. There are there are Muslims in Sanjak. There, you know, Serbia is a multi-ethnic state. There are Hungarians, there are all sorts of people. So I don't think that would even be a question. I think it's a question of sovereignty. And uh, and I think if that were to occur, some accommodation would be made that uh, it would be preserve the unity of the Serbian state, preserve Serbia's heritage in, in Kosovo and Metohija but also uh, would not be something that would necessarily be a problem for the, the, the Albanians that continue to live there. No, that's a, that's a good answer. And I think the Balkans are going to be something that, you know, much like World War One. and again, I know I, I bring out the World War analogies. It is called World War now, of course, but much like World War One, they'll come to play a relevant role in this broader confrontation between East and West as, you know, for thousands of years, over a thousand years now, that region of the world has been kind of the clashing point between, you know, the Eastern world and, you know, Christendom in a lot of ways. So of course, I think it would make sense that that it would come down to that in a lot of ways. But I think moving uh, to the source of all of this conflict, of course, to the belly of the beast, the swamp, Washington, DC, America, Jim, of course, spent many of his days in DC, you know, during this time of this, he himself was in my opinion, my favorite contender for vice president that we've ever had in the United <laughs> in the in the in the United States, but uh, I, I want to talk about the Iowa caucus. Of course, we our prediction was completely accurate. We predicted a Trump blowout. Trump did blow it out, and we have New Hampshire approaching. Which again, the next time you're hearing from us, we'll know the results from New Hampshire. So after that, there's Nevada and South Carolina, and then I believe after that, uh, we have a Super Tuesday is the next election. I believe maybe Jim can correct me there, but those are the first four states where all these things are kind of decided. And as of right now, it's everyone's waiting to see if Nikki Haley or Ron DeSantis would drop out first. I very much believe it'll be Ron DeSantis that Nikki Haley is being coalesced around with the establishment. In many ways, a lot of the establishment would prefer her to Biden because she seems more capable and committed to just the full-on you know, globalist cause just from the kind of cringe center-right perspective. So Jim, I'm wondering your perspective on the upcoming primaries, how you think New Hampshire may go, and what you think. I mean, I think we're all in agreement that Trump is going to get this nomination, but how do you think the election is going to fare from there? Yeah, it's. Uh, I, I think you're right. Uh, I, I, can, I could see DeSantis dropping out. I can't see Nikki Haley dropping out probably up until the convention, because at this point, she's the only thing that the... Uh, you know, I don't like the term rhino because, frankly, the people they call rhinos, those are the real Republicans. I mean, it's, it's you know, the Republican establishment, that's the only thing they have left. 
And uh, she's not much, but that's all she, she's all they've got. Uh, DeSantis just isn't catching fire. I mean, DeSantis was more designed to be, you know, Trump without Trump, uh, Trumpism without Trump, to sort of appeal to his populist base, some of the stuff he did in Florida and say, yeah, but he's 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 kind of like Trump, but at least he he's not doesn't have a foul mouth. His, his fingernails are clean. He's he's presentable to mama, you know, uh, in, in a way that they think Trump is not a bad man or bad man. But. I, I I don't you know obviously he didn't catch fire and uh, at, at this point of course you know the big thing we're all looking for is is New Hampshire will enough Democrats and Independents cross over to keep her in the game maybe even threaten Trump there I'm I'm not going to venture a prediction on that I I I would not be surprised either way even if either if she blew him out of the water uh, excuse me he blew her out of the water or whether she comes in with a strong social showing and even wins she is hurt by the fact that even though DeSantis is not campaigning in New Hampshire, uh, he's still going to be on the ballot in New Hampshire. And that could bleed some votes away that probably would have gone to her because those are people who, for whatever reason, just don't like Trump. South Carolina is even harder to call, assuming uh, that because, you know, that's where, at least according to the reports, DeSantis is going to make his stand. But remember, that's Nikki Haley's home state. So, um, I, you know, I again, I don't I, I think Trump's going to do very well in South Carolina. At that point, I think he's going to be very, very hard to catch unless they can find some way to take him out with this so-called lawfare stuff, all these criminal prosecutions. You know, as somebody was pointing out in another discussion, th the fact that he did so well in Iowa makes some of these prosecutions a little harder to sell because they come across so much more as what they are, which is essentially just a, a legal shenanigan to try to take out an opposition political figure. So, um, uh, again, I think plan A remains, convict Trump of something, keep him off the ballots. It's And, and again, I'm not even thinking so much about the primary ballots, but as the, the general ballot uh, in, in November, because I think he will be the nominee. It's interesting if you look at the brief that was filed to the Supreme Court, the amicus brief, by I think 27 states uh, opposing the efforts by Colorado and uh, Maine to keep him off the primary ballot. Uh, that it did not include any of the big swing states uh, except Georgia, because they have a Republican attorney general there. Pennsylvania was not there. Michigan, uh, Wisconsin, uh, Arizona, the, the other states that Trump really needs to carry were not in that brief opposing uh, the, the taking off of the ballot in Colorado and Maine. So I think it's very likely uh, the people, the Democratic and even some of the Republican uh, office holders in those states are sitting back and holding their fire until he gets convicted of something. And then they can shoot with real bullets to try to keep him off the November ballot. If he's not on the ballot in Pennsylvania, the election's over right there. So, you know, this, this, this is, I think, really what Plan A amounts to. Plan B, of course, would be the kind of stuff they did back in uh, in uh, in 2020 with the, the mail-in ballots and the ballot harvesting and all the rest of it. And Plan C, I, I think we can all imagine what Plan C is. Well, I think now that you mentioned Plan C, and you know, we you know, images come up of somebody who actually resisted the American conversion into the New World Order system. I think a lot of us agree. Maybe JFK was probably that sort of person. At least he had the personality, and maybe he had the plans, which you know, in the end, we'll probably never know for for sure. But his yeah. vice president, Lyndon B. Johnson, actually did play along, especially to the globalist trumpet. Uh, no pun intended. And the worst Texan in American history. <laughs> Well, yeah, but here's the question, right? Because all these candidates are dropping out, and there were rumors of Nikki Haley, um, vice presidentship, God forbid. Uh, she sounds even worse than Kamala Harris, frankly. And then, of course, there's the talk of the uh, our 7-Eleven friend, 
Vivek Ramaswamy, who actually coming coming around, he does seem like a more Trumpian type figure. He's you know under forty. He is active on social media. He's approachable. He jokes. He he doesn't have a big ego. He he's actually quite well spoken and in fact quite an entertaining figure. But and he does give a, like a bit of like a he's like a positive Zelensky type character. So he's actually like likable, handsome looking Indian guy who essentially knows how to speak to the people, knows what to say. And people seem to like him. I mean, maybe the average American boomer would probably view him as a bit of a, a bit of a representative of multiculturalism, which he may be. But do you guys see, I mean, Conrad, maybe weigh in, weigh in on this for a second and then pass it to Jim, because I was just wondering your opinions on Vivek, because we haven't really discussed him on World War Now. But if he is the vice president, are we looking at some sort of this huge alliance of Aryans, right? We have an Indian Aryan, we have like a Trump. <laughs> I'm sorry, but I have to say it. But are we looking at like a Hitlerian type, oh, you know? Oh uh, my gosh, golly, yes. Well, I think, um, I think uh, Vivek, I could see him maybe having some kind of role in the administration, but as far as bringing a coalition in as of voters, as he doesn't really bring too much to the table, because I'm sure we'll see in New Hampshire, I think will be very clear that everyone that was voting for Vivek will just vote for Trump. I don't know if there will be any person that was voting for Vivek that will switch over to uh, DeSantis or to Haley or anything like that. So I think it's as far as he he doesn't, not that Vivek would be a bad choice per se, but he doesn't need to pick him for electoral reasons. He needs to pick up. Unfortunately, I, I think at this point it's going to be Christy Nome from South Dakota. That seems to be a lot of people. Yeah, but why would he do understand. that? He's going to get to South Dakota anyway. I mean, it's true, but it's more about who does he pick. It's a woman. She's not as offensive. He, you know, he has the base already. It's about who he appeals yeah, well, to. These, you know, these the suburban women and whatnot. But uh, again, I've, maybe I'll be surprised. Hopefully, it's somebody more more dynamic and interesting than by, that. By but, the way, if they do manage to take Trump out in some way and shoehorn Nikki Haley in as the Republican nominee, I I don't I I think it would be actually quite expected that the deep state would want to play the red card instead of blue this time because it would be oh look we still have a democracy the Republican won yay. Even though it's you know it's just you know just you know John McCain in a skirt you know it's uh, so I could I could easily see them doing that if she becomes the nominee uh, yeah you know vice presidential vice presidential uh, races I mean look a lot of people announce for president because they really want to be picked for vice president you know when I announced in 2016 I think I was the first one in American history to do that and then that that copycat Jimmy Kimball stole my gig you know uh, so I feel really bad about that but. Uh, yeah, I don't think they would. He would pick Vivek. I don't think he would pick. I, you know, it's look if he picks Nikki as his running mate. Not only would it really anger his base if he did manage to get elected, he'd already have signed his death warrant because he would just be begging that for somebody to want to make her president. Mm -hmm. So uh, I can't imagine he would do something that dumb. Although he's made a lot of bonehead personnel decisions in the past, you know. Somebody I know suggested he could pick um, Yunkin in Virginia as his running mate. You know, that's got establishment written all over, Carlisle Group and all the rest of it. And there's still no guarantee he could bring you Virginia anyway. So I don't see an obvious person he could pick that would bring you the kind of swing state you need would be a loyal vice president instead of another Mike Pence. And uh, it also wouldn't be just an open invitation to take him out. Well, he really needed one of those characters in the 2022 uh, midterms to win, whether it was Carrie Lake or that character up in Michigan. Yeah, Tudor I've heard her name. That, that Maybe that's a yeah. possibility. I don't know. Yeah, he really it would. She would be much more likely if she had, you know, won the election and was the current governor of Arizona. Yeah. That would be an even yeah. better choice. But, you know, that that they, they fumbled. Comrade, that comrade she did. She did win the election. Where are you? <laughs> Come on. Oh, no, 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 no. I agree. I agree. But the um, I think the uh, I think in Michigan, in some places they ran 
they didn't run some of these people were Carrie Lake aside, some of these candidates, they didn't run the best candidate. Then they didn't run the most MAGA candidate they could have in some of these situations. And I think, Jimmy, you're completely right when it comes to plan A and plan B here. And I hate I see all these conservative people feeding right into this narrative saying, well, you know, they can't you can't Colorado and Maine can't do this and take him off the ballot because he hasn't been convicted of insurrection yet. Kind of feeding into this idea that, well, when he is, quote unquote, convicted of insurrection, yeah. therefore he can be taken off the ballot, which is ridiculous. No, he shouldn't be able to be taken off the ballot at all. But of course, I think you're right that if that comes through, they are really going to try for that, especially I mean, Pennsylvania, they've. They've run the gambit on Pennsylvania after I was very close on the Mastriano campaign, which, you know, had mm -hmm. a lot of problems, of course. I could give my whole criticisms, but they got destroyed in 2022 because, you know, there was no institutional work from the Republican Party to get a handle on any of the ballot harvesting stuff or anything like that. So no, it, no. Pennsylvania is going to be a tough one to begin with. I think we have a better shot in Arizona. We have a better shot even in you know, Wisconsin, Ohio, obviously, maybe even Michigan, but Pennsylvania is going to be really, really a tough nut to crack, especially because the former attorney, the lockdown attorney general, he ended up becoming the governor. So it's going to be. Well, exactly. Exactly. And then and, the, and you've got a very partisan Supreme Court in Pennsylvania, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. I mean, I was very mm -hmm. active in 2020 contacting people in the state legislatures in Pennsylvania, Michigan, but especially in Pennsylvania, it's my home state to try to get them to stand up and for, for their constitutional prerogative that they set the procedure for picking the electors, not the governor, not the attorney general, not the secretary of state, not the Supreme Court. And they didn't do jack. They were afraid to stand up and say, wait a minute, the, our, the law we passed was violated in picking his electors. All they had to do was say that and that we are we, we are declaring these electors to be invalid. They wouldn't do it. They wouldn't do it. And, uh, and I don't, frankly, I don't expect much better this time around. Now, look, you know, I, I was in Serbia. I got there the day after the 2022 election, the congressional election. And some of the media, the first question they would ask me, so, Mr. Jatras, were these elections also stolen? I think that's a uh, I think that's a reasonable question. And the Russians, they seem to be teaching it in their textbooks. So I think it's <laughs> going to that's going to be that's going to be the big unit. That's going to be the first unipolarity versus multipolarity historical divide is the is the 2020 United States presidential election. So we've all been through history. Right. But uh, yeah. Yeah. But I'll, be, I'll tell uh, you, I'll tell you, Conrad, I, I don't see how we get through November without something very so something going, something slipping very badly because I cannot see an election that in which the losing side, whether in reality or in contrived, says, "Oh gosh, we lost this one. Well, better luck next time. We'll try again in 2024." We accept. I mean, I don't see any any good loserism coming in in November. Well, and Jim, I mean, I'm not trying to be. I'm not implying it. I mean, I am implying something here, but you know, I'm quote unquote not implying anything here with the. This election is curiously lining up with, you know, some conflicts getting curiously close to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And I'm, I'm starting to worry that these two events, whether it's this conflict in the Middle East between the Zionists and everybody around them, and this basically free fall collapsing republic we're experiencing that also happens to be in control of the largest imperial army the world has ever known. Uh, I'm wondering if these two events will unfortunately coincide into a into a horrible mess of eschatological proportions. And of course, we we pray that things don't get that bad, but it seems that I, I seem to see things going in that direction. And I think in that same vein, I think we got to switch over as we're getting closer on time here. We want to talk about some church news. And of course, in previous weeks, we've discussed Greece's flirtation with gay marriage and the church in Greece's, you know, statement against it, which we like to see. It could have been a little bit stronger, but of course, recently we've seen some statements from 
uh, Archbishop Hieronymos of, of Athens, who seems to be, I don't really know what he was saying. Jim can catch us up on that. And we also see Ancient Faith Radio flirting with the deaconesses idea, hosting these conferences, which again, yeah. I think platforming these type of people from the St. Phoebe Institute, these deaconess propagandists, I think even platforming them and not just ignoring them and censuring them is is kind of the wrong approach. But we'll get into all of that a little bit. So Jim, what is your what is your perspective here? Well, as far as Greece goes, I mean, yeah, there was an excellent uh, statement issued by the bishops of Greece, but unfortunately not the Orthodox bishops of Greece, by the Roman Catholic bishops of Greece. It was a really excellent statement. I, I sadly cannot say that the Orthodox bishops issued anything near as good. They, 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 a statement they issued a few weeks ago gave the sort of the wimpy uh, position that we, we don't need to say anything specifically about same-sex marriage because the church is opposed to all civil marriage. And therefore, whether it's same sex or not is doesn't affect the church. I mean, which is the dumbest thing you could say. I mean, it, if it, look, if they didn't have civil marriage at all, I suppose you could make some kind of argument like that. But they've had civil marriage for decades. So uh, to take that position when what's on the table is same sex marriage, like they don't have a, a stake in Greek society as a whole. And, and the whole, you know, the whole uh, moral uh, content of society is just uh, dereliction of duty. Now, this most recent statement from uh, the Archbishop of Athens had this very confusing statement that, well, this is the direction that the, the country seems to be going in, and we really don't have anything right to say anything about it, which, again, makes no sense, whatever. He did say that they would, um, would favor uh, the, the possibility of a referendum, which uh, I know some of the smaller conservative parties in the, in the Greek parliament had called for, uh, because the polls do show that uh, the majority of the population is against this, although there have been some, some polls on the opposite. I mean, to date, Ireland's the only country I know of, or at least the first one, that has approved same-sex marriage through a referendum. At, at least that would give the country a fighting chance, uh, although it does tend to legitimate the notion that somehow things like this are up for grabs in a, in a, in a democratic vote. In any case, I, the, the bishops are meeting on the 23rd, that's this coming Tuesday, and uh, I am told that there's going to be a lot of outrage among the bishops against what the archbishop has said. There's a lot of things going on behind the scenes to put pressure on the Mitsotakis government. His party, New Democracy, is splintering over this. Uh, Syriza, the leftist party, obviously, uh, uh, oddly enough, is also splintering over this because there are reasons that I don't fully understand why a lot of their members don't want to have to vote for this, partly because it's the government's bill. So that puts the opposition, Pasok and the rest of them, in uh, in in some kind of problem. Even some of the old light communists and in the, in the KKE, the Greek uh, Communist Party, are not going along with this. So this could be one of those things where it's a train wreck for all the parties in the parliament, and uh, and Mitsotakis would have to rely primarily on opposition votes to get the thing through. Uh, he has pledged, though, he's going to bring it up in late January, early February. You know, I don't even rule out that there's something. Machiavellian here, where he said, okay, fine, fine. I am committed because my my controllers in Washington and, and, and Brussels insisted that I do to bring this up, but he may have the engineer in a way that the vote fails and he can shrug his shoulders and say, well, look, I tried, they voted it down. I don't expect that to happen, but I don't rule out that may be what he's thinking. Uh, the other thing you're talking about is the deaconess thing. 
I have heard about this conference. I don't know why Ancient Faith would 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 sponsor something like this. Most, I, I, you know, I, look. I think there are some people behind the deaconess thing that are rather just sort of naive people and think, oh, we just need to be nice to the girls, which is not a very good principle for operating anything on. But uh, look, most of the people who are in this movement are not dealing straight with people. I mean, they use this deceptive language where they use deaconess as synonymous with woman deacon or female deacon. But of course, the deaconesses, when they existed, were not female deacons, were not women deacons. And uh, and I noticed that they did not invite to this conference uh, someone that I consider the uh, the premier authority on this question, which was uh, Father Deacon Patrick Mitchell at St. John the Baptist Cathedral in D.C., who's written, written a book, which I recommend to everybody, called The Disappearing Deaconess, which lays out the, really the tradition of our church on this. Yet, yes, in some limited places and times, there were deacons under, excuse me, deaconesses under very different social circumstances than exist today, but the church has a much longer and deeper uh, tradition of not ordaining deacons, deaconesses, and that's the one that should prevail. Yeah, very interesting. While we're on the subject of deaconesses, I think what's most suspicious to me personally, right, as an outsider to this particular discourse, but someone who's, you know, read plenty of Russian history, so I'm trying to find exactly what is the connection between these modern proponents of deaconesses and maybe some iterations of it in the past and most most commonly cited, at least by by Russian scholars, but maybe not in the English sphere, is, of course, St. Elizabeth Fyodorovna, the... Um, the sister-in-law of the Russian Tsar. She was actually very mm -hmm. eager to implement deaconesses in the Russian Imperial Orthodox Church and in that society back in 1911. In December of 1911, there was a, a preliminary council hearing taking place. This is the council which later, of course, convened in 1917 after the Bolshevik Revolution mm -hmm. or during the revolution and elected Patriarch Tikhon. But there was a lot of things discussed at that council that was kind of like on the papers that we're going to bring up. One of those subjects was actually deaconesses. And this is completely left out. And notice, I'll probably reveal to you why she isn't mentioned by these you know, pushers of deaconesses, especially from, I would say, the more uh, English-speaking community, maybe even the Greek Fortamite types. Well, mm -hmm. naturally, St. Alexandra being married to uh, the late you know, great prince Sergius, the son of Alexander II, who expelled the Jews out of Moscow in the, in the late 1800s. So this that's literally her husband, the governor general of Moscow, essentially the power of the mayor, expelled the Jews to the Pale Settlement because they were essentially infesting Moscow, destroying its commerce. And so she's his wife. He gets assassinated by Talmudic terrorists. And then she put... she. Of course, the you know she's incredibly pious. Her relics were the, the most incorrupt relics of all the Alapayevsk martyrs. Um, when the, and now, of course, they're in Gethsemane Garden in Israel on the outskirts of Jerusalem to this day. You can go venerate them. But I just want to mention she was actually four deaconesses in December of 1911. But why did it break down? And this is where the story gets really interesting. So there was a there was a bishop in Russia quite young. He was in, I mean he was in his uh, early 50s. His name was Hermogenes Dolganov. So uh, Saint uh, Hermogenes was uh, the bishop of Saratov, and he was incredibly conservative. Like we're talking the most one of the most conservative bishops of the Russian Imperial Church. With, you know. We've spoken about you know protocols of the elders of Zion, things like that. These documents being spread by Saint uh, Vladimir Bogoyevlensky, but Bishop Hermogenes was you know, he was accused by the by the actual media of the Russian Empire at the time for actually starting a, a Jewish pogrom in Saratov, his diocese, which was probably false. But nevertheless, they say they blamed his sermons on that, and. Yeah, you know, he's he's known for his really strong views. He's actually the guy who, you know, during his stay in Georgia, he's the one who expelled Joseph Jugoslavi Stalin from the seminary for skipping class. 
Really? So he was really super strict. Uh, so St. Hermogeny is a really interesting character worth reading about um, naturally. And uh, moving on, so he was actually a big, the, the biggest, foremost opponent of St. Elizabeth's proposal for deaconesses. And her idea of deaconesses was, I think, and this is, I think, modern, I would say these modern Fordhamite women trying to bring this idea in, they're probably not going to like this. But her idea was, well, essentially, these were mainly catechists. Right, so she was actually a big mm -hmm. catechist of women mm -hmm. amongst the Russian secular society, mm -hmm. and she actually didn't take monastic tonsure, but she also emphasized very heavily. And these are the things which I think modern, shall we say, liberal women won't really appreciate. So, uh, for all those viewers who have that particular position in life and who are feminist uh, ecclesiastics, but she was a big proponent of deaconesses ha having to be virgins, virgins, and also taking, of course, not not just this oath of chastity, but also the fact that they could not hold any private property. So none of this like having like Instagram accounts, things like that, that's completely out of, you know, out of line. Mm -hmm. So no social mm -hmm. media. And of course, a lot of modern women, this is like, whoa, what do you mean? I'm a reformed virgin. It's like, no, no, that's not what we're talking about here. This is like extreme semi-monasticism here. What we see in monasteries, but with, you know, nuns, matushki, gerontisses, things like that. This is, but still, you know, Bishop Hermogenes opposes this idea in 1911. He starts a big scandal and he actually breaks the protocol of the Russian Imperial Church, sends a DM, sends a letter directly to Emperor Nicholas II and calls deaconesses this subversive move. He says it's a disorderly indulgence towards the opponents of the Orthodox Church. It's going to promote, uh, you know, disorderliness in the church, which wasn't allowed. You're not allowed to send, as a, even as a clergyman, you're not allowed mm -hmm. to send private letters to the church. It all has to go through the synod, through your ruling metropolitan. But he sent a letter to the emperor directly. Uh, and it, it, the other thing in the in the letter that was being discussed was, of course, they were discussing in the Russian church a special funeral rite for non-Orthodox people. So something, mm -hmm. because again, fun funerals were very dominated by the Orthodox Christian church. And there are a lot of mm -hmm. people who like, I guess, apostatized. And how would you exactly see these people off? I think to this day, we have these questions when catechumens pass away, which are, of course, resolved by local bishops. But St. Hermogenes was a member of the Black Hundreds, which we speak about all the time, Conrad, so you can understand mm -hmm. his views. He later became the Bishop of Tobolsk, and he was one of the first bishops to be killed by the Bolsheviks. We mentioned all the right-wing-based bishops were all taken out in the early months alongside the Tsar himself, so uh, Andronicus mm -hmm. of uh, Perim. Uh, Bishop Hermogenes was martyred by drowning. They drowned him in the river, uh, in the Tura River, and one of his last sermons, actually, I'll just read out a quote because I think it's relevant when people speak about it. You know, we see communism, Marxism around today online, but this is what one of the great saints of the time had to say. He says, remain faithful to the faith of your fathers. Do not bend the knee to the idols of the revolution and their modern priests who demand that the Russian people disappear. Distort the Russian people's soul with cosmopolitanism, internationalism, communism, open atheism, and bestial, vile depravity. So after these sort of words, the, the Bolsheviks sent a hit squad to Tobolsk, which was his new diocese, and they took him out. But this is another like saint who I think is just an image of exactly conservatism and you know this other oppositionary approach to deaconesses. And I don't think any of these new pushers of deaconess theory would ever bring up Saint Elizabeth. They'll never bring up Saint Hermogenes and his opposition. And naturally, notice deaconesses weren't brought up in the 1917-18 councils. So his his opposition to to that particular proposal was probably taken mm -hmm. up by the Russian church. So that was the last time actual saints mm -hmm. thought about this idea. But this isn't going to be mentioned by these modern Fordhamites and pushers of liberal ecclesiology. They're not going to mention these like, sorry, the wife of the governor general of Moscow, who's an alleged anti-Semite. It says so on Wikipedia. Whoa, we can't, can't bring her up. It's like, okay, well, 
well, then it's the discussion's not real. I'm sorry. You guys are just pushing some neoliberal idea that you're trying to implement into the church and corrupt the you know the teaching of the saints yeah. essentially. So uh, this whole project is very suspicious, and I'm glad there are American priests actually calling it out and speaking about the history of it. Why this subdeacon esque uh, monastic type institution disappeared over time because it just simply wasn't needed. And I think that's the main message here is that these people use any sort of avenue to get at the you know, the vanguard, the strength of the Orthodox Church, which is in its traditions. They try to, you know, squeeze little things through and, of course, subvert things from the inside, which is almost impossible at this point. But naturally, they're still going to try. It's, I mean, the game well, is still on. Well, you know, it's uh, there are a number of things. You mentioned catechists. There are a number of things that women can do in the church as well. And that they don't need to have a special order to do that. Uh, and as far as, you know, what Grand Duchess Elizabeth thought that they should be virgins. I mean, there was, you know, that's not a requirement for becoming a nun, for example. Uh, and uh, and of course, you know, she was not because she was had been a married woman. Uh, so it's, uh, it, the, 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 you know, there's and there's also a historical, let's say, lack of clarity between what deaconesses did in the times and places where they existed and how that was different from another order, so to speak, what they called the widows, which were also tended to be women over 40 who were, you know, had basically were living monastic or semi-monastic lives who had various responsibilities having to do with the pastoral care of women. There's any number of things that could be done like that without saying, let's bring back deaconesses. And that's, again, where I think the deception comes in. That's not what they want. What they want is female deacons. What they want is the lowest order of the priesthood, women vested in church, you know, trilling out the petitions the way a deacon does during the liturgy, and basically having authority in the church, uh, not just over women, but over men as well. This is clearly what they want. And now, of course, you know, I, I, I'd have no trouble saying at least some of them also want the slippery slope to priests and bishops like the, the Anglicans have done. Uh, but, uh, you know, even that even that slippery slope is not the reason to just say no. There cannot be any order of the priesthood that includes women, and that includes the diaconate, the diaconate, not deaconesses. So, you know, this is, again, it's it's a Trojan horse. Anybody with any sense knows this. The fact that you have the uh, the Fordhamites and, and the people at a Jesuit institution uh, who, are, who are in favor of this. Unfortunately, you do find even kind of just ordinary kind of Protestantizing layman, like with groups like uh, Orthodox Christian laity that have somehow gotten bored on with this thing, because I think, unfortunately, the level of uh, education and um, and knowledge about these things, and frankly, understanding the spiritual content of this stuff is just so low among so many people in the church that, you know, it, it's easy for people to be intimidated. So, well, can, why can't we give the women something nice to do? I think in many ways, it's a just the discussion of it happening on Ancient Faith Radio, which you get a lot of people pegged Ancient Faith going a certain direction. They, I remember it was a few months back, maybe even over a year ago now, they were going to have, I'm forgetting her name, she's the head lady at the Deaconess St. Phoebe Center thing. There was going to be an interview with her on Ancient Faith, and there was outrage, so... Uh, Father Andrew Damick, you know, canceled it, but now they're doing this whole symposium or whatever. And sure, Metropolitan Saba seems to be speaking at it. And right when he took over as head of the Antiochian Archdiocese, he issued a whole statement saying, anybody still doing this silly female altar server thing needs to stop immediately, which there were a few characters in the Archdiocese doing that. So he seems to be pretty strong on these issues. So hopefully this is a strong, you know, rebuke is what this ends up being, but I'm very skeptical of that being the purpose. I don't know why. They're being mm -hmm. platformed on a big, you know, well-known platform of the Antiochian archdiocese like Ancient Faith Radio. But towards 
what you were saying about the gay marriage situation in Greece, Jim, it would be really unfortunate for an Orthodox country to finally cave on this yes. issue because Romania yeah. still hasn't done it. Cyprus still hasn't done it. And, you know, okay, of course, yeah, if yeah. Greece... If Greece falls, I could see Cyprus going quickly afterwards and mm -hmm. then Romania not wanting to, but having way more pressure ramped up as one or two Orthodox countries had already fallen behind. So the State Department and NATO and the EU can pressure them to say, look, look, you know, the Greeks already did it. Why are you holding out so strong? So it's 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 yeah. a really unfortunate thing that will happen and will hurt the entire Orthodox world if it really goes through. So, yeah. And by, and by the way, I, I, don't, I don't think there can be any uh, doubt that lurking behind this is Constantinople because uh, it just, it, you know, look, there's almost a perfect uh, congruence between the forces in the church that are supporting Constantinople on the schismatic church in Ukraine and the ones who are liberal on other social issues. And, mm -hmm. and of course, this goes back to Patriarch Bartholomew himself going back decades on many things. You know, you know, we need to keep in mind historically what the link is between feminism and, and the rainbow stuff. I mean, it, it, there would have been no, you know, rainbow movement starting in the late 1960s, if there not had already been a feminist movement that wanted to uh -huh. make male and female interchangeable. The two things are deeply linked morally and spiritually. Oh, I completely agree. And, you know, Greece, you know, they, they want to be the cradle of civilization. And then they also want to do, you know, sodomite marriage, which, you know, you see graphs showing that certain regions of Greece, their Greek patriotism comes more from a pagan ancient heritage than any kind of respect for Byzantium. So maybe, maybe that's what this kind of thing leads. Well, that's, that kind of I think, I think to. that's largely a, a, a class and education distinction too. I mean, unfortunately the kind of bifurcation of the national personality that occurred in Russia with Peter occurred in, in the liberation from the Ottomans in the 19th century mm -hmm. and all of those countries where you had an educated class that were largely, largely Freemasons had lived in Europe, had been educated in Europe, had absorbed a neo-pagan Europe, European culture. And then you had an a, a educated, largely peasant class that was still rooted in the church and in, and in the older traditions. And that dichotomy still exists. You know, it's, in a way, it's kind of like an orthodox version of red states and blue states. Mm -hmm. No, yeah, that's very true. I think you can notice that even among certain members of the diaspora. And yeah. Yeah, we, we, we be sure to listen to our Ether Hour episode this week. We talk about that issue with uh, Bishop Athenagoras of Nazianzos and the Hindu temple and his apology, mm -hmm. and then use that as a segue into talking about some of our favorite bishops and some of the best stories of modern times and bishops today. You know, we're not, it's not a complaining episode. It's an episode about, you know, what the bishops that we like today have been doing for the church in the positive direction. So, be yeah, sure and to I'm click glad, and I'm glad he did apologize for that. And of course, I note that he pointed out, and as far as I know, it's true. He was there representing Archbishop Elpidotonos, and that he was reading mm -hmm. a letter from him. I don't know that he necessarily mm -hmm. wanted to get roped into that thing. Yeah, no, he literally went to St. Anthony's and apologized. So, yeah. yeah, we break that down a little bit further on our Ether Hour episode this week. So it was it was good to see that from him, I believe. I was able to see him at the monastery near my house for the Holy Archangel's feast day. So it was good to see him do that. But with all of that, we've come up to the time limit here, and I think we've hit all of our bases. So thank you so much, Jim. Uh, we're going to do the plugs here in a little bit of a second. But do you have any last words, any final things you want to let people know of around the world analysis-wise? I feel you're like you're pointing a gun at me. You got any last words? Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Just to say that, you know, the only place I have a public presence is on X slash Twitter, whatever it's called mm -hmm. these days, uh, just at Jim Jatris. So people can follow me there. And the other thing is um, I am working on a book with my collected writings. It's tentatively entitled. I tried to warn you. 
uh, that should be out, I hope, sometime soon after Pascha. That's excellent. Yeah, we can't wait. And of course, when that's published, we'll surely have you on, um, you know, maybe a month or two, or whenever you're free to discuss that particular work in specifically, I think, like a focused episode. It's it's definitely like a step in the right direction. So uh, for all you guys, follow Jim Jatras on X, Twitter. Naturally, he posts some really enlightening things on geopolitics, international relations, things of this nature, and on the Orthodox Church as well, actually. So he does comment on essentially all the things you like you know, you like from us, basically. So he's almost like the perfect the perfect guest and the perfect co-host of World War Now. And in fact, we are very grateful that in the first few weeks of 2024, we've had you on, Jim, to give your initial perspectives. And as the year progresses, who knows, it may be crazier than last year, although last year was, uh, you know, with the whole Progosian and October 7th thing, I don't know if it can get any wilder than that. But we'll see. There are a lot of elections coming up. Oh, it's- it will. It will. <laughs> Look, we... Uh- we ain't seen nothing yet. Yeah, yeah. So things are getting warmer. We fought 2020 and the COVID pandemic is crazy and things just got crazier and crazier. And yeah, we're we're definitely living in this uh, circus type globalist simulation. And I think hopefully they are losing control slowly over time. Maybe we'll have some leeway in the future to liberate ourselves. And frankly, we're seeing that on X and Twitter. That's kind of a reflection and Telegram, which allow us to speak our minds a little bit more reasonably and freely these days, which we're grateful for. So definitely, um, I think... Thank you for having you know for having us speak to you, Jim. Like I think it's it's a great opportunity for us to actually share our thoughts. And naturally, we welcome any sort of uh, any sort of feedback from the audience. If you guys would want Jim on some more, definitely comment below on Substack, comment on the YouTube, uh, give us your opinions, your feedback. Uh, it's it's great to have this conversation with such an esteemed member of the uh, American Conservative Society. I would say. Thank you, Dimitri. Thank you, Conrad. It's been a pleasure yep. and an honor. Thank you, Jim. Yeah, with all that being said, you know where to find us, worldwarnow.co. That's the same as worldwarnow.substack.com. You find any articles we have, all of the Ether Hour episodes. You can get behind the paywall there, and it really helps us, supports us here on the show. So do that. You get access to all of our paywall of episodes. We mentioned the Bishops episode. We're going to have that linked below. So click that down there. Uh, follow us on YouTube, World War Now. Follow us on Rumble. You know, leave comments there. It really helps us out as well. Follow us on Telegram, World War Now Telly. Follow us on Twitter, World War Now underscore. You can follow me and Dimitri on Twitter, just like you can follow Jim, of course. I'm at GnomeRad. Dimitri is at OCanonist. So find us at all of those places. And yeah, leave us a comment. Shoot us a DM if you have any questions. And with all of that, yeah, Jim, thank you so much and God bless. Blessed Theophany and Sprazdikov.